All right, Samantha Marillo is our scripture reader this morning. If you'll make your way up here to the microphone, that'd be great. And as she comes, um, the kids, fourth grade and younger, can be dismissed to the kids' service. They have a great lesson and a craft ready for them to go this morning. We are uh, coming to an end of the book of Mark. It's been a while, but uh, it's come by really fast. We will make our way into chapter 16, the beginning of it, and then we'll finish chapter 16 next week, Lord willing. And uh, Yes, ma'am? There we go. That's our microphone right there. And so if you will follow along on the screen or on your Bible or your device, uh, we'll be reading from... Testing. Oh, there we go. There we go. All right. Here we go. Samantha, how's the Lord treating you? Good. Good, good. It was good to have you and Christian. This is... Where's Christian? There he is. Christian and Samantha, y'all been dating for about how long now? A couple of months. A couple of months. So we're praying for them as God's will would be done. We're, Christian, you had a good time Friday night? Yeah, it was really good to have you there. All right, good deal. Samantha, if you read, we're going to be starting Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Okay, Mark 15, verse 40. Um, man crawling on the floor. Uh, <laughs> there were also women looking, on, looking from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salomon. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respectful member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut off the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary of the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salomon brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of next week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stones for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, as they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen, and he is not here. See the places where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you, Galilee, there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, from trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing for anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Samantha. Appreciate that. Some of you may remember the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona, Spain. And this athlete right here, Derek Redmond, one of the world's top 
uh, track stars and was expected to win at least a silver, if not a gold. And the race started, and he got off to a great start, but then he heard a pop, and the back of his hamstring had torn, and he collapsed right there on the track in anguish. But he had trained his whole life for this day. Everything had built up to this time, and he thought to himself, if I cannot win, at least I'll finish. And he got up, and wincing in pain with the tears flowing down, he began to hobble and, and walk through as best he could to the track store. And then a man in a white t-shirt came out of the stands, pushed away security guards, and ran over to Derek Redmond and began to help him to finish the race. And that man was his father. And his father came down and, and, and was helping him, and he told him, son, you don't have to do this. He said, no, dad, I, I want to finish and his father said, well, then I will finish with you. And he, they crossed the finish line together, father and son. And it, today, even though Derek Redmond didn't win the gold medal, he still has the world's attention from this story right here. And, what, and a moment that him and his father will never forget and that the world will never forget. And that there are times when it looks like all hope is lost, but then God can make something beautiful out of a negative situation. Now put yourself in the situation of the disciples. They've spent over three years with someone they've never known anyone like him before. Jesus Christ. He was more than a man. He was the God-man. And they had fallen in love with him. They had learned to follow him. They had learned so much from him. He literally changed their lives and turned their world upside down. And they thought that he would be the king, not just of Jerusalem, not just of Israel, but the king of the world. They thought that, that the new era was coming in, and the new world order from a biblical standpoint was coming in to be. And then he died. He had told them three times at least before that, that I'm going to die. I'm, I'll even tell you who's going to kill me, how they're going to kill me, but that three days later I'd rise again, but... All that kind of got lost in the, the cloud of their mind because they were so focused on Rome being vanquished, taxes being lowered, military oppression being relieved, you know, suffering and pain wiped away and joy would be restored to the nation of Israel and the, the former glory of Israel would be restored. They were so focused on that that they missed the forest for the trees and what Jesus was trying to tell them. And it looked like to them... All hope was lost, but, but it wasn't. There's three things that we commonly think about in the life of Christ. We focus mostly on his death. We wear the jewelry around our neck with the cross. We focus a lot on the death. And, and when we do the ordinances as a church, which ordinance focuses on the death of Christ? Communion, very good. Communion is all about the death of Christ. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I did for you, how I suffered and I died. The broken bread represents his broken body. The cup represents his blood poured out. The focus of that um, ordinance as a church, and an ordinance means something we do together as a church that we can't do on our own. You know, we can study the Bible on our own, amen? We can pray on our own, right? We can sing and worship on our own, but communion is meant to be done together. Which ordinance focuses on the burial of Christ? 
Who knows? Patrick, go ahead. <laughs> baptism. We are buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in the newness of life. That's what baptism that focuses on is death. Now, most churches, and this is not a big issue, so don't think I'm preaching something controversial. Most churches believe in two ordinances. I actually believe in three. And I, and I believe that for a reason, because I think it spells out the gospel more clearly. If, if communion is the death of Christ and baptism is the burial of Christ, the third ordinance is, a focus on the, is on the resurrection of Christ, what ordinance would that be? Church. It's coming together. It's the Lord's day. There's the Lord's death, there's believer's baptism, and there's the Lord's day. They picture the death, the burial, resurrection of Christ. Now, if you look at these three, which two is the emphasis heavily upon? We focus a lot on the death. We focus a lot on the resurrection. But we don't really pay as much attention, at least not as the others, on the burial. But let me tell you this morning, the burial of Christ is not only theologically super important, but also it is just as miraculous as the other two. It, it was prophesied, his burial, the details of his burial were prophesied hundreds if not even a thousand years in advance. But also how it all came into being. Now we know the resurrection is super supernatural in every sense of the word that a man is raised from the dead and that that resurrection power is still in us today through the power of the Holy Spirit okay but God was just as much showing his supernatural power in the burial of Christ and how in his providence and in his sovereignty he arranged all the people that went into making it happen exactly the way he wanted to so today we're going to focus on the burial of Christ and Mark, you know, all throughout his book, he likes to make sandwiches. He starts a story, and then he interrupts his own story with the middle, and then he finishes the story. And usually what's in the middle is the meat. It's the main part of the sandwich. Well, he does the same thing here. He talks about the ladies and how they were surprised, you know, to see Joseph doing what he was doing, and they were falling from afar. But then Joseph goes to Pilate, and Pilate's surprised that Jesus is actually dead because sometimes people would hang on the cross for days, and then when they went to stick the spear in his side to see if he was dead, he indeed was. Because Jesus didn't bleed to death, did he? Jesus didn't die of a heart attack. What did Jesus say? I give up my life. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he hung his head and gave up the ghost and died. So Jesus gave up his life literally, just like he prophesied he would. And then, of course, then we, the end of the sandwich ends with the ladies going back to the tomb. And they're also surprised again. They're surprised at this time that Jesus is gone. So let's divide this passage into three sections. Uh, look, look at this with me. And again, the chapter break is kind of unfortunate because the story flows between the two. I want us to look this morning at the courage to stand for Jesus that the ladies and Joseph and Nicodemus practiced. I want to also look at the cost to sacrifice for Jesus. And then thirdly, I want us to look on the care shown for Jesus. So first of all, the courage to stand for Jesus. So when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, the day of preparation, ladies, what is it like when you're getting, what is it like the day before Thanksgiving in your home? <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, especially if you're hosting this year and you're doing a lot of work to get ready. Imagine all that when you're celebrating the biggest Jewish holiday of them all, Passover. 
It's the day to get ready. It's the day of preparation. There's more than just cooking involved. There's a whole lot involved in the day of preparation for there. And, and so it's evening. So it's getting down to the last time. And it's the day before the Sabbath, which they're going to celebrate this. And Joseph of Arimathea, okay, Joseph is a very common name in the Bible, right? What was Jesus' foster father named? Joseph, yeah, very common. And Arimathea, we don't know exactly where it was. Evidently, he, it was a small town that was not very significant, but he was very significant. He was a very well-respected member of the council. And the council here is talking about the Sanhedrin. Just like Moses had his 70, the rabbis during the era before Christ and, and shortly after Christ, they, they thought it would be wise to have a, like basically a supreme court of 70. And so very few men reached the level of to, to be on the respectability of the Sanhedrin, but Joseph Arimathea was one of those. And he was also, he was a very godly man because he was looking for the kingdom of God. He was not like the rest of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was actually looking for the Messiah. They were looking for a different kind of Messiah, but he was looking open to the kingdom of God, whichever way God brought it. And he took courage. The decision... To do what he's about to do took a lot of courage. It could cost him his career, and probably did. It could cost him many family relationships, and probably did. And in many circles, it could even cost him his life, because we know how violent people could be and how they tried to stone Paul. They may have tried to do the same thing with Joseph Arimathea. To do what Joseph's about to do with the body of our Savior took a lot of courage. And that, but he, he took courage. Notice, notice it's in the verb sense. It does not say God gave him courage which God can do, right? But courage is a choice. Courage is not the absence of fear, but it is choosing to do what's right in spite of the fear. Everybody in this room, I'm sure, has done something courageous where you were scared to death and you knew what you needed to do and you did it anyway. And that, that's what courage is. And he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. This is something that you had to leave. It was a legal re request that you, they didn't just turn over the body to anybody. They usually turn it over to the nearest of kin. But we don't know why Mary hasn't asked for the body yet. Maybe Joseph had a conversation with her and said, hey, can I go ask? Maybe Mary's afraid that they wouldn't turn it over to her, but maybe a respected member of the council might be able to receive the body. So he turns in this legal request, which is a public announcement. It's a public document. So Joseph is going public on his faith. We'll read later that he was a, a secret disciple, but now was the time to step up and, and see what often was done. Roman soldiers may not always turn the body over, but just out of spite, with, if nobody claimed the body or if they just wanted to be spiteful, would throw the body in a ditch. And because so many thousands of people were crucified, sometimes the ditches were full of the bones of crucified people, especially the, the criminal ones that nobody wanted to claim because of the disgrace to the family. But he goes there and he asks for the body of Jesus, which here you'll see several signs that Mark is sending out here that Jesus is indeed dead. Because we'll talk about it in a little bit. There's something called the swoon theory that Jesus didn't actually die. He just kind of passed out and they laid him in a tomb. We'll talk about that ridiculous idea here in just a little bit. But um, Luke gives us more detail. He says there was a man named Joseph and keep that in the forefront of your mind, his name is Joseph, from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council. It says he was a good and a righteous man. Here's more detail that Luke is telling us that this guy is a good guy. 
Not all the Pharisees, Sadducees, elders, and scribes were bad. We know that many of them repented and accepted Christ, some later, especially around Pentecost. Verse 51 says, and he had not consented to their decision and their action. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the Sanhedrin condemning Jesus. Basically had a trial. It was an illegal trial for a dozen reasons. It was held in the middle of the night. Jesus wasn't given a defense. All these different things like that. And usually the, the normal practice of this high court was that when they voted a verdict of innocent or guilty, they started with the youngest member and they each individually went through and gave their decision. The reason they started with the youngest member is because they didn't want them to feel the peer pressure of the older ones to vote a certain way. Did they do any such thing with Jesus? No, it was mob rule, and it says they all consented because it was a verbal vote. Like, crucify him, crucify him. And people like Joseph and Matthew are like, what, we're not going to vote? Didn't even get a chance to speak up and say. Some people would point to this and say it was a contradiction. Well, they all voted this. Now, it doesn't mean that they all literally voted. It's just like if you're at the Astros game and everybody stood and cheered. Well, did you actually look at every single seat? Or did you see the guy in the wheelchair not standing? Come on, you're being literal. Why would you call that a, a contradiction? Okay, first of all, there's, another, there's several options. One, maybe Joseph did vote in favor of it, and then he changed his mind when he saw how Christ died, just like the centurion and, so, and the thief on the cross and several other people changed their minds. But I don't think that's what happened. It says he didn't, it says he didn't consent, and he, he didn't go along with their decision and their action. So I don't believe this is a contradiction. I think you have to make a stronger case than that to say that. Um, John also adds some details and says, and after these things, Joseph Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, he adds the word that he was a follower of Jesus, but he was doing it how? Secretly. Let me ask you a, a personal question here. At work, are you a secret disciple of Jesus? It's better not being a disciple at all, but... Eventually, you're going to have to have your day where you come out and stand, take a stand for Jesus like, like Joseph did. In your neighborhood, would you be considered a secret disciple? In your family, family reunions, get-togethers, are you a secret disciple? I'm praying that God gives you the courage that you would take the courage like Joseph of Arimathea to stake, take a stand for Jesus and no longer be a secret disciple, but he asked for the body. And the reason he was a secret disciple is for fear of the Jews. Proverbs tells us that the fear of man is a trap. Don't fall into that trap. You need to be in a situation where you don't care what people think of you. I, um, I, I got saved at Newark Baptist Church in Newark, Delaware, and I, my family was predominantly not believers. In fact, not predominantly, nobody was a believer, and at least when I, at the point I got saved. And I grew up under the, the preaching of Dr. Lee Boffman, and he was a great pastor. He could preach for an hour, and nobody cared. We were just all glued to our seats and riveted, and he, he'd go verse by verse through the Bible, and we, we were just spoiled with the teaching that we were given there. But he was outside the pulpit. He was a very quiet man. In the pulpit, he thundered. I mean, he, he preached loud and hard. But outside the pulpit, very quiet, very shy, and even a bit of a recluse. We didn't have very many conversations. He would just say hi, and maybe that would be the most I'd get from him. And I was one of the most regular youth in our church. I even got to preach there at times and do different things like that. And so I, when I went, was going off to Bible college, it was my last Sunday there. 
And uh, I actually stayed after church, and I was getting some of my stuff that I had at the church, and I'm boxing it up. And uh, Pastor Boffman happens to come by the, the kitchen where I was boxing some things up, and he said, so, hey, Milborn, he always called me by my last name. He said, so you're leaving for Springfield. I said, yes, sir, I am. I don't know if I said yes, sir, now. I guess that's a Texan in me. Back then, I was a Yankee, so I probably didn't say yes, sir. But anyway, I said, yes, I am. And he goes, well, have a good time. And he walks out. I'm like, that's it? That's, the, that's my motivational speech from my pastor of nine years? This is, that's what I get? Have a good time? And he literally walked out the door of the kitchen. And I'm just standing there with my jaw on the floor. And it's like he went out into the hallway and kind of mustered up the courage because he was shy. And he walks back in. And he goes, Milborn, when you get to Springfield... You don't care what anybody thinks about me, you hear? What, what anybody thinks about you, you hear? I said, yes, and he walked out. You know, those words just etched in my soul. Don't care what anybody thinks about you. And I, 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 I let that be my guiding principle through Bible college. I asked tough questions that maybe other people wouldn't ask. I, I kind of was not in the mainstream on, on a lot of my beliefs on things like that. And, and yet that stood with me that you cannot worry about what people think about you. Who should you... Whose opinion matters most? God's does. Just Jesus Christ and what he thinks about you. If you please him, everything else will fall into place. So he had the courage to stand for Jesus and says, Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. Again, some people would last on there for maybe two or three days, maybe some longer, some shorter. just depends on how brutally they were beaten. But Jesus gave up his life and he had already died. And so Pilate's like, eh, Somebody sinned for the centurion. I want to hear it directly from him. So somebody runs against the centurion. The centurion comes in and he says, yeah, he definitely is already dead. And so when he learned from the centurion, he was already dead. He granted, watch this, here's another clue, the corpse to Joseph. Another clue, Mark keeps saying, we want you to know for sure Jesus is dead. And not only were the Romans experts in torture, experts in crucifixion, they were experts on whether someone was alive or dead. They knew how to pierce someone in the right under the fifth rib to get the sack around the heart to determine whether someone was dead. They knew Jesus was dead. So when you hear theories that Jesus had not died, then that's baloney. There's a book that's been out for decades called The Theories of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, and this guy presents what's called the swoon theory. It's been around for about 140 years, this theory, that Jesus was taken down off the cross. He was put in a cold tomb. He was able to sleep it off for a few days and get his strength back. Now get this, after being brutally beaten, nails through his hands, nails through his feet, pierced in under the rib to penetrate the sack of his heart, he managed to get the strength to pull, push away a stone that four Roman soldiers couldn't push away and walk out. Do you see how desperate people are to not believe the resurrection? And Mark anticipated that. That's why he keeps throwing you clues. The body, the corpse, that he was dead. It was very clear. It was very uh, obvious from a medical and a forensic standpoint that Jesus was indeed dead, and he was dead for three days, so it wasn't like his heart was resuscitated. So what we see here is both Marys, Salome, Joseph, and Nicodemus, who also joined Joseph of Arimathea, as one of the other gospels tells us, they had the courage to stay, take the stand for Jesus. The question is, will we? Will you take a stand for Christ? Let me tell you, we, just 20 years ago, if you were proclaiming to be a Christian and that you regularly attended church, you were in the majority. Today is not the case. 
Not only do they not want to hear about your religion, now they're going to start calling what you believe a hate crime, and you could go to jail. I expect in my lifetime I might serve time because of what I've preached. I'm just ready for it. I'm not trying to be a martyr. I'm not trying to be, play the victim. I'm just prepared for it. But I, I, worse than that is that many of you, you may get fired from a job because you believe homosexuality is wrong. You may get fired from a job because you believe in the sanctity of life. You, you, may, you may get persecuted on many levels. And let me tell you something. We're not being persecuted even a fraction of what our Chinese, Korean, or Sudanian brothers and sisters are being persecuted right now. Okay, People around the world are being persecuted. It is free season, open season on Christians in our world. You, you say something bad a Muslim, it, you're Islamophobic. You say something about homosexuality, you're homophobic. You say something about a Christian, you could be on the news as a hero. And so just be ready, teenagers. Be ready, young couples. Be ready, everybody, that we're in a world where we're in the minority now, if you're a committed Christian. But we need to have the courage of Mary and Joseph and Salome and Nicodemus to take a stand. Number two, there's the cost for, to sacrifice for Jesus. The cost to sacrifice for Jesus. So Joseph, he could have gotten any linen he wanted, but he wanted to do something special for Jesus, and he went out and he bought a linen. Don't miss those key words there. He bought a linen. He's a very rich man. He could have gotten any linen he wanted, but he wanted something special for Jesus. He wasn't going to give Jesus leftovers, if you will. And it was a linen shroud, and he, and he took Jesus down and wrapped him. Now think about that. What does Jesus look like right now at this point? He's been beaten to, not to be disrespectful, but he's been literally beaten to a bloody pulp. He's disfigured to the point where he wasn't even recognized as a man. And this was a job that was given to servants and slaves. And if you didn't have enough money for a servant or a slave, you gave it to the women. But two men, two very religious, respectable men said, we will do the job of a servant. We will take down the body of our Savior. Imagine when they've laid the cross down, you're pulling Jesus' hands through the nails. In each foot, through the nails. And this is the one you love. That, that's just... It's beyond most of our comprehension. Some of you are nurses. You've been there when people have died, you know, and you know how difficult some of that is to remove the IV after someone's passed away and to remove all the things like that. But removing nails, removing the flesh from the nails, and then wrapping his body and then carrying it to a tomb that had been cut out. This was a tomb that had especially been cut out because he was wealthy. Some people were buried in caves and different places, but some people had enough money to have a a cave basically cut out. These were no small caves. They usually had an entrance and they had an area to where enough people, a family could gather inside them. And then they rolled the stone against it. A lot of detail went into what they did. Matthew gives us some different details. It says that he was a rich man and that this tomb was his own tomb and he had it specially cut out for him and nobody had ever been in this. Now, the reason that's important is because they reused tombs over and over again. They'd put a body in a tomb. They'd give it like a year. 
Then they'd go in and they'd collect the bones and put them in a book called a, a, a box called a coffer. I can't pronounce it. Anyway, they'd put it in a box and then they'd go put the box somewhere else. And then they'd put the next dead person in there. And they'd use that same tomb for generations and generations. This was a brand new tomb that no one had ever been in. A brand new linen for his body. You see a pattern here. Joseph is giving everything of the very best for Jesus, which is a great role model. Amen. So John tells us that Nicodemus was also the same one in John chapter 3 that came to Jesus by night. He was scared to come to Jesus during the day for his reputation, but he's not scared anymore. He's coming out and saying, I'm a Christian, throw me in jail if you want, but I'm taking care of the body of my Savior. And he's bringing, he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and he brought 75 pounds in weight. And if you translate that into today's dollars, we're talking $150,000 worth of ointment here. We're, here's two wealthy men not sparing, being stingy, not, not holding back, pouring out their love on Jesus and making a sacrifice to, to give for him and out of respect to him. So when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, again Mary's a very common name as well, and Salome, they brought spices. So they saw what Joseph and Nicodemus had done and now three days later, they go to the tomb, and they're going to anoint the body as well. Jews did not um, embalm like the Egyptians did. They simply anointed out of respect and out of love and to keep the smell down. They, that's what they did so they could visit the body. And so you see this costliness, this sacrifice that these believers are making, and they're, they're putting into practice probably a proverb that they all knew, Verse, chapter 11, verse 24 says, there's one that gives freely, yet grows all the richer. And another that withholds what he should give, and he only suffers want or need. And whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters or gives a cup of water will himself receive a cup of water. That's the way God has set up the laws of his universe. You're generous, it comes back to you. You reap what? What you sow. It, it, generosity, and this is what these people are doing. They're being super generous towards the body of their Savior. So there is a cost to sacrifice for Jesus. It's not something that's meant to be easy. Sacrifice implies suffering a little bit, doing without something because you love someone else. And so my question for us this morning is, what has it cost you to be a follower of Jesus? What does it cost you? Can you point to any time in your life where you suffered some way, somehow, or did without something, gave up something because you were a follower of Jesus. So there's the courage to stand for Jesus. There's the cost to sacrifice for Jesus. And now we come to the third point, the care that they showed, had shown for Jesus. The care they shown for Jesus. So Joseph, again, key name here, he bought a linen and he was taking him down Okay, imagine again getting blood on yourself with all this. He wraps him in a, a linen shroud. He lays him. See all the actions. This, this, this is something that took painstakingly difficult effort and time. And he laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. You see, it was Joseph that cared for the newborn body of Jesus and placed him in a manger at the beginning of Jesus' life. And now here at the end of the life, it's a Joseph that cares for his dead body and places him in a tomb. 
Do you see Mark's sandwich here? The beginning of his life, the end of his life. Beautiful poetry there. The, Mark writes the most beautiful gospel in many ways. Not more beautiful than the others, but it's incredibly beautiful. And then he rolled a stone against it on the entrance of the tomb. Now, the, the stone was designed to be easy to roll down, but hard to get back up. It wasn't just some big boulder. It was a stone that was probably about 18 inches thick and 7 foot in diameter. And it was placed in a slot. And there was basically a peg under one end to keep it from rolling. And so you remove the peg and you put a big stick under it. And you could pry it up and it would roll down into that, the curve that was cut in a slot. And once it was down, it was extremely difficult to get back up. So that's why Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus are able to put it down but they're not able to get it back up. They, they seal the tomb. And what's interesting about this is they were sealing the tomb because that's not only what they wanted, it was designed for that, but it's also what the Pharisees and the chief priests wanted. Listen to this. Matthew 27 says, The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order that the tomb be made secure until the third day, which is a whole lot more than a stone. Made secure means we're making a legal request that you basically, like police officers, would tape off an area with caution tape, okay? That you tape off the area, but what they would do is they would put wax seals there, sealed by Pilate himself, armed guards, round the clock, four at a time, armed Roman soldiers, you think the disciples who ran away like little girls, didn't even have the courage, would now all of a sudden have the strength to overcome four armed Roman soldiers? <laughs> I don't think that that's likely or even possible. And, and they said, you know, you need to secure it. You need to put an armed uh, battalion there, lest his disciples go and steal the body away and tell people that he's risen from the dead. And now the last fraud, fraud would be worse than the first. They're saying Jesus is a fraud. And now there's going to be another fraud if you don't guard the tomb because they're going to start lying. Here's what's really ironic about that. Thinking they could suppress the news of the resurrection, they actually helped prove the miracle of the resurrection. By sealing the tomb, they took away that, the idea that the disciples stole away the body. They, they did it themselves. Or that anybody could steal away the body. Or that Jesus himself could do the swoon theory. The sealed tomb made sure that the only way Jesus got out of that tomb is that God raised his body from the dead. That's the only way. And here's what's so ironic about this. They, they said themselves that Jesus said while he was alive that he, um, that, he, that he would rise from three days. Wait a minute. They just put him on trial and they said when he said he'd raise up the temple, he was talking about what? The temple. And they put him on trial for treason against the state because he said he destroyed the temple when he said, no, I'm talking about my body, and now all of a sudden they know they're talking about his body. It's proving that they were lying earlier when Jesus was under oath. So when you look at the care shown for his body, you got Mary Magdalene, okay, which was the one that was possessed by seven, seven demons. We've got Mary, the mother of Joseph. It says that they saw where he was laid, okay? Mark is using intentional language here. He's saying eyewitnesses. It wasn't just Joseph and Nicodemus got this little plan going, oh, let's tell everybody where you buried them. The women actually saw. And the reason that Mark is naming names is he's, these people are still alive. He's saying, if you, here, I'm writing this whole thing. This is not a legend. I am writing history. 
And if you doubt that anything I'm writing is true, go ask the eyewitnesses. And there's no record in history where people were asked, hey, Simon the Cyrenian, did you really carry the cross of Jesus? Yeah, I did. There's no record that says, no, no, I didn't do that. There's no record of anybody anywhere contradicting the Gospels when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John name eyewitnesses. People, college professors will tell you, oh, the New Testament is just a bunch of legends, that there was a Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth maybe, but now, hundreds of years later, they deified him, and they've turned him into something he's not. They've turned him into God. They made up this whole legendary tale of he rose from the dead. That's baloney. That's why the gospel writers name eyewitnesses, because these things actually happen. And if, you would think that if this was some big conspiracy theory, like let's just say we said that Ronald Reagan rose from the dead, you know, and that Republicans get all worked up and deify Ronald Reagan, and he was amazing. He performed miracles, and he rose from the dead. There, there's people alive. How many of you were alive when Ronald Reagan was president? Okay, M many people in this room. People would be coming up saying, no, that's not true. That's not true. And we, there'd be newspaper articles left and right saying, that's not true. That's baloney. Where is the recorded history of anybody contradicting the disciples at the same time that they're writing this? Hundreds of years later, yes. At the same time, no. In fact, you've got the exact opposite. You've got Josephus and Quintilian and all kinds of other Roman historians, Jewish historians, non-Christian historians verifying that this Christ did rise to the dead and there were witnesses and that there were even riots over the whole subject. So they, these ladies, they bought spices. They, again, they've, they've sacrificed and they go to anoint him, which is a very loving act. Again, put yourself in their shoes. Here is the beaten body, the crucified body of the one you loved, and you're having to do this. And they're doing this very early in the morning. There's no sleeping in. They made a great sacrifice. I'm sure they haven't slept very well. And they're doing this on the first day of the week. And so that, that's what they're intending to do. Obviously, they didn't get to do any of this, but that's what they were planning on doing. And the sun had risen, metaphor there, in more ways than one, the Son of God had risen. And... They were saying to one another as they're walking to him, hey, I just realized something. We got every, all this ointment, but who's going to roll away the stone? You know, there's five or six of us women here. None of us, we're not strong enough to roll away the stone. You see what's happening there? And they're like, we can't ask the Roman soldiers. They probably wouldn't do that for us because we're Jewish women. They wouldn't do it for us. They wouldn't like us. But looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and Mark adds this comment. It was very large. This was something that nobody would have done easily. It's not something they could have done. And then they entered the tomb, which again, it's big enough that these five or six women could walk into, and they saw a young man on the right side. Why does it say it's on the right side? I could spiritualize it, try to pull out a metaphor, but the only reason it says it's on the right side is because that's what had actually happened, showing that this isn't legend, this is history. They're just noting little details, you know, like when it says that Jesus was asleep on a pillow, you know, all those things. It just adding because that's what happened. And so this young man is dressed in a white robe, and they're alarmed. Why are they alarmed? Because this is a messenger of God. He's not just any young man in a white robe. He's in a glowing white robe, as you can see from the other Gospels, and they're alarmed. Now, some people have a problem with this, too, because Matthew says that there's how many angels? That there's two. But just because I said there was a man doesn't mean there was only one man, okay? You know, football's coming, you know, and uh, they, the, the Texans get to play the Cowboys this season, right? And if we say... Dak Prescott beat the Texans up there in, you know, in uh, Jerry World. They say, oh, 
oh, you, you contradicting yourself? You didn't name anybody else? You're saying Dak beat them all by themselves? No. Although I don't think that's going to happen, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll have a little friendly bet on that one. We'll see. But anyway, just because you name one person doesn't mean you're doing to the exclusion. If Mark had said only one man was in the tomb, there's a contradiction. But again, people are always looking for these things, and they're giving the benefit of doubt to themselves, not the benefit of doubt to the Word of God. And he said to them, don't be alarmed, which isn't that the, the, the reaction the angels always have to say because people fall down like they're dead and say, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. And then he uses the word see. The word see here doesn't mean just look. It means investigate with your eyes. Look at the place where he Study the place where he was laid. And you see the, the linens that they wrapped his body in flat like a butterfly that had left a cocoon. You see the napkin that was placed on his face neatly folded up and put it on a separate spot. The angel saying, hey, do a little forensics yourself and see if you can figure out what happened here. And of course, the, obviously, the answer to all this is the resurrection. And then he says, but go tell his disciples, and this amazing word here, and Peter. <laughs> now, Mark is the writer of the gospel, who is his primary source when he's writing the gospel? It's Peter. Many people call this Peter's gospel because he's basically the one who says, and then we did this, and then we did this and this, and Mark's recording all this. But Mark is adding his own poetic style to this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he says, hey, go tell his disciples. And the one who denied me three times, come on. It's okay, Peter. Come on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to Galilee. I'll be there before you even get there. I'll, and how did, how did Jesus get there before they got there? Because time travel, however, he just went through, went through there. And it says, and you will see me just like I told you. How many times did I tell you? I'm going to be resurrected. I will go there before you. And so they, they did all that for Christ. You know, I am so glad that God is a God of second chances. Amen. How many of you experienced a second chance from the Lord? Man, I am. Um, so as a lot of you know, I, uh, I, I surrendered to preach when I was 15. I told you a story about going off to Bible college. And when I said goodbye to my pastor there, I graduated from Bible college. I went to a church on the north side of Houston when I was 22. I was at that church for 10 years. Then I pastored a church in Clute, Texas for a few years. And then down there I had resigned because my marriage was falling apart. And I tried to, to put it back together, and it didn't work. And I got divorced. And in the kind of old-school way, a lot of denominations back then, they looked at divorce as the unpardonable sin, and, and then you were done. You could not be in the ministry anymore. And that's nowhere in the Bible, by the way. But and I'm not condoning divorce. I'm not saying it's a great thing. But after a time of healing and a time of proving yourself, men can and women can be qualified to minister again. And so, but I thought that I was done. And then uh, a few years after that, I, I, I married Tammy, and we went to Delaware to meet my family, and we went to church, and we met my pastor. And, and here it was at Newark Baptist Church. And I had another short conversation with Dr. Lee Boffman again, and I'm thankful I had that conversation because a few years later he died. And so I am in the living room of Dr. Boffman and his lovely wife, Nina, and she was so sweet. And they were having us in their home for dinner, and we were done, and we're just kind of wrapping things up. And you can tell the conversation's winding down, and we're getting the kids ready to go and to leave. 
And I have another one of those great conversations with Dr. Boffin, and he says something to me that lasted. He said, he said, Milborn, always call me by my last name. He said, if God has called you to preach, you preach. And that stuck with me. And I studied the scriptures, made sure I, that not just he was approving of me preaching, but that God was approving of me preaching. And that gave me the energy to get back and the motivation to get back into the ministry. I'm thankful that God gives us second chances. You see, all of these people showed their love for Jesus by doing what? Caring for his body. Joseph and Nicodemus carefully taking him down off the cross, carefully pulling his flesh through the nails, carefully wrapping him, carefully carrying him, laying him in a tomb. The women were prepared to come and carefully love and care for his body. Do you see the story that Jesus is trying to portray for us here? That we show our love for him by the way we show it for his body. So the question is, how much do you love and care for the body of Christ? You see, we still have the body of Christ. It's us. We are the body of Christ. That's not just my metaphor. That's what Paul says. He says, you are the body of Christ. You are his hands, his feet. Think about that. His hands that were nailed. His feet that were nailed. The ears, the eyes. We are all together, collectively make up the body of Christ. And so the question is, how, do you, how much do you love and care for the body of Christ? 1 Corinthians says this, God has so composed the body, God put the body together, that the members may have the same, what? What's that word? Care for one another. If one member suffers, what? All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together, together, together. That's what the word church means. It means an assembly. It means a gathering. It means that we gather together. And when we come together, there's something beautiful happening here that the world does not understand. We are the body of Christ. And these people showed their love for the body of Christ. So the evidence of your love, of my love for Jesus, is proven in direct proportion to how much we care for his body. Let me ask you a question. How's your care for the body? In what ways do you show that you love Revolution Church? That you love not just the, the building. We're not talking about a building. We're talking about the body of Christ, the people. And how much do we care for one another? So it says that they went out and they fled from the tomb. And they're trembling and astonished. Imagine that they, their Lord and Savior is resurrected. They're going in their hope in preparation to anoint a dead body. And he's alive. An angel told them so. And they're they're feeling all kinds of the whole gamut of emotions. And, and they, it says that they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, he told them to go tell the disciples, but it says they said nothing to anyone. And a lot of people will say they disobeyed the Lord. I don't think that's what's happening, because it, we have another gospel that says that they told Peter and the disciples. So who is they didn't tell anyone? It's in their going they didn't tell. You see that three other times in the gospel of Mark, where he tells a leper, Go show yourself to the high priest now that you've been healed. But on your way, don't tell anybody. So the leper, the whole way there, is probably wanting to tell everybody he sees, but he doesn't tell anybody. But then he does go tell the priest. Again, no contradiction there. Mark has that pattern three other times in his gospel where he tells someone not to tell, but they are to tell a specific person. So on their way, Mary, Mary, Salome, and the other ladies didn't tell anybody on the way until they 
got to what their mission was, and that's to tell Peter and the disciples. Matthew backs this up. So they departed quickly from the tomb, and watch this. This isn't the kind of fear like, oh, I'm afraid to be a disciple of Jesus. No, it's fear and great joy. They're just like shaking because they cannot believe, absorb all that just happened, that their Savior is risen from the dead, just like he said. And they did tell the disciples. So today we saw how it takes courage to stand for Jesus, like Nicodemus, Joseph, Mary, Mary and Salome did. But there was a cost to sacrifice for Jesus. It cost all of them some money, some time, some emotion, some effort. And then they showed their love for Jesus by caring for the body of Jesus. There's a, a beautiful picture, that, another beautiful picture that Mark is trying to portray here, that the gospel portrays. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And on the first day of creation, he creates light. He, he works all week. It says six days God worked. And on the seventh day, God, what? Rested. And Jesus is in the tomb all day Saturday, okay? But then he's risen from the dead on what day? Sunday, which was the first day of creation. And here we have a picture of God working, God resting, and then God bringing forth a new creation. Do you see the beautiful picture there? This song, this beautiful song portrays that for us. And if you can make sure the volume is up, guys. Amen. The, the death of Christ is where he bore our sins. But the burial of Christ is where he buried our sins. I want you to think of the sins you've committed, the past you have. We all have a past. We all have a baggage. Think of the worst from the least. And that all of them are pra- placed in the tomb of Christ forever. Forever. I don't care how you failed the Lord. I probably failed them worse. Don't let your failures define you. Don't let your sins enslave you. Don't let your past put chains around you. They've all been buried. They've all been left behind. We are, the Bible says that if you've accepted Christ as Savior, you've been buried with him through baptism and raised to walk in what? A new life. Do it. Live a new life. Live with the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit of God in you every day to go forward, to press on, and not be held captive by your past. Ephesians 2 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Because, read this last line with me, By grace you have been saved. You can keep trying and trying to please God and do things to make God like you. Forget it. Just receive the grace of God. Let Christ save you. And now go out and do things because you've been created in Christ Jesus. Do you know him personally? I'd like to ask for everyone just to bow your head and close your eyes and just focus on what the Lord has done. He died and he was miraculously buried and buried all your sins. If you will trust him as your Savior, they will all be buried there for eternity. Why not make him the Lord of your life right here, right now? He gave everything for you you can give everything to him and put your faith in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Father, we thank you that 
you ordained the burial of Christ before the foundations of the world to be the salvation of mankind. So, Father, help us in humility to trust in the finished work of Christ and to rest in it. We thank you for the love of Jesus, and it's his name we pray. All God's people said, amen, amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ, I'd love to talk to you about that decision and how you can follow him in baptism. And so there's my number. Call me or text me anytime. We'd love to, to have a conversation with you. Uh, who do you know that would benefit from hearing a message like you heard today? I, I want you to think about that and pray and invite them to join you next Sunday as we next Sunday finish the gospel. Um, let's see. Amanda's here? No? I saw, and then Tori's not here. Samantha, yeah, come on. Samantha's going to help me with question and answer. So if you have a question, you can text that in anytime. You want her on this mic over here? There we go. Looks like that one's the first, I think. Do you know if Nicodemus was crucified or thrown in prison after he became a Christian? Great question. I, there's no historical record that I know of that... Um, that he was, um, I, my, my guess is he lost his position on the Sanhedrin, but I don't know that either. But there's no, I haven't read of anything that said that he was crucified or thrown in prison for believing what he did. If, by the way, if you, if you watch The Chosen, they play Nicodemus super well. That's just, you'll fall in love with the character, and it sets it up for the end. That's probably my favorite episode. I think it's season one, episode three. It's episode seven. Okay, yeah, you should watch The Chosen. It's amazing. Any others? Any of these up here? No? Nope. All right, any else have a question? Raise your hand if you want it, if you didn't have time to text it in. Charles. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, because there is um, certain translations, like the ESV has a UK version of it. So, yes, that they definitely do because, you know, like the Bible says thing in cubits, and sometimes they'll translate that for us into feeder yards, but most of the time they don't, but sometimes they do. And so, uh, but yeah, thankfully we can go back and find out, we can do the transfer of measurement from one system. Now, that's a great question, and I, there definitely is and are, and, and that's why, you know, I don't know if that, some of you have come from like a KJV-only background, and that's why that's such a bunch of baloney, because there are so many good translations all over the world. So you, you can't ask people in Japan to read the King James Bible. It's just, are you saying that God only wants people to understand in Old English and the rest of the world is just lost? No, the, the, the proof that God has preserved his word is the way he uses languages all over the world. You, you know that in Africa, right? I mean, that you see that. Um, and so, um, in fact, some people criticize the Bible for saying, well, we don't have the originals. No, if one person had the originals and they made a change, is the original preserved? No, but if you have a copy and 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 literally thousands of people, 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament have, uh, and I change mine, how do you know it's wrong? Because I've got 24,000 other copies that say you're wrong. You know, so the preservation is in the mass distribution of the manuscripts. More, I mean, there is more man, there's only 6,000 um, of manuscripts of Caesar's Punic Wars. That is the second highest from that era. 
25,000 New Testament, 6,000 Caesar. And yet people criticize the Bible because, well, we don't know if we have enough evidence. I mean, in some ancient manuscripts, um, there's only like five, not 5,000, five copies. And everybody just reads it like, you know, um, what's that one book? Um, oh, I'm sorry. Huh? Homer's Iliad. H- handful of copies. And yet it, you read it in college all the time. Based on five. We have 25,000 New Testament copies. So anyway, thank, thank you, Samantha, for helping. Did any others come in? All right, good. Well, let's stand, and we're going to give thanks for the food here, and then we'll head over. Rob and Chenda, good to have you back in town from your many travels. Uh, Rob, would you give thanks for the food for us and, and thank the Lord for everything today?